as you can see then by the slide, uh, we're going to embark on a new book beginning today. Probably this will be mostly introduction today. So um, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. <laughs> and it's a little humorous for me, but uh, it's somewhat humiliating. When I prepare a lesson, there's been this pattern lately that's developed. And, you know, I, I usually start with praying about, well, what, what are we, where are we going to go next? What am I going to do? And deciding on what to teach. And then I've noticed lately a nudging. I call it a nudging that I get in a certain direction. And I believe it's the Holy Spirit. And so I go that way. And uh, as I begin preparation for the, for the lessons, my first, my first thing that happens is I get excited. And I start thinking about all the great things I'm going to say and how good I'm going to look And uh, <laughs> when I do it. And I'm, I start to get puffed up. But I'm going to tell you something, that it is not long before I discover two things. I know very little, little about this topic, about this book. Very little. It's, it's the one that was chosen. And it just so happens it's in my area of greatest weakness. And so I understand that these lessons are really more for me than they are for you. And uh, I need to get out of the way and let the Holy Spirit lead. That's also why I love your comments. Because I know the Holy Spirit is talking to each of you. And you have something to say. Please interrupt me. You know, uh, that's some of the best teaching that we get. So, with that in mind, we're, gonna t we're going to... Uh, go into the introduction for this book, the letter uh, to the Galatians, epistle to the Galatians. Now we notice something about Paul pretty early on as we begin to read some of the things that he writes to the, the churches and to individuals. And that is that he repeats certain concepts. But even though there's this repetition of ideas, uh, he's really not redundant. Uh, each of his epistles has a distinct and a specific subject, and it comes at it from such a perspective that all the bases get covered. And this letter, I believe, is no different. You know, the early churches faced uh, many of the same challenges at the beginning of the first millennium as we do today at the beginning of the third millennium. And you know what else? The, the instructions that they were given are the same ones that we presently need. Uh, and when you think about it, at the core, the world really hasn't changed. We may think it has, but Satan hasn't changed, and his tactics haven't changed. Certainly, God's not changed, and neither is his word. The answers are still exactly the same. The Galatian letter, we're going to see, it specifically addresses a couple of things. Number one is legalism. I got a problem with this. <laughs> and it's as opposed to the liberty that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's also going to focus, like a microscope, on the believer's relationship to the laws of Moses, the Old Testament. And I believe we're going to get great benefit from what Paul has to tell us as we go through this. Um, Galatia. If you look on a map for a, a city named Galatia, you'll be disappointed. There is no such city. It is an area. It's a region. It's a province. 
It was located in Asia Minor, what we know of today is uh, present-day Turkey. And depending on whether Paul is talking to churches from the northern region or from the southern region, actually ties in very closely to the date of authorship. Now, the northern region, that was the one, it was established about 350 B.C. That's the ethnic area. Uh, it was, or Celtic, that's where the Gauls, that's what this people's name was when they, when they moved about with, uh, Western Europe. Uh, when they came into this area, uh, they uh, settled largely there. And then it wasn't until about 25 B.C. that uh, the Roman Empire incorporated them into their city limits. And uh, that was in the southern section. That's the, that is the political or the Roman section of Galatia, southern. Now we know this, that Paul, in his first missionary journey, uh, he went to the southern region and, and established churches there. And so we're looking at a date of around 48, maybe 49 uh, A.D. And it's probably right around the time of what we know as the Jerusalem Council, very important council. That was about 48 A.D. Uh, now, if the letter was written to those churches in the south, that would make a very good case for this being Paul's first epistle. If, on the other hand, we're talking about the northern region, that ethnic region, uh, that was a second and third missionary trip, and uh, that would then put us in a range around 53 to 55 A.D. for that one to have occurred, and it would have been well after the uh, uh, Council of Jerusalem. Now, so we have these three events that we're juggling, the first missionary, uh, tour, uh, the Council of Jerusalem, and the second missionary tour. And that really affects the dating. Now the general consensus of the scholar is, well, it couldn't be that early because, you know, the subject matter that came out of the, de the decisions that were made of the Jerusalem Council directly addressed a lot of the things that are in this book of Galatians. And there's no way that this uh, letter could then be to the southern uh, province because he, well, Paul would have said, hey, I got a letter here from James and the guys, and, and uh, they say, uh, these are the answers, you know, move on. And though he doesn't directly do that, he does strongly infer things that came out of that meeting. And it's almost as if, in my viewpoint, Paul is trying to establish his points based on the merit of the argument. And so I tend to lead toward the earlier, and I tend to uh, think that it was after the Jerusalem Council, although it doesn't directly state that. A lot of the uh, expo exposition I'm going to do as we get into those areas of the, of the uh, book will kind of lean into the, into the area that I think that he, that he had his answer already from his official answer, let's say. Okay, now, the theme of Galatians, which I've kind of danced around a little bit already. It's so important that before we actually get into the book, I think uh, that it would be helpful for a little background information, a little uh, bit of general info for purpose uh, and theme. Okay, there are many things in scriptures about which Christians disagree, believe that or not. Uh, believers are not always clear on what the Bible teaches. Okay, I didn't say the Bible wasn't clear. But this may have more to do 
with us, that is our preconceptions and our biases that we bring to things. These influence our interpretation of what the Bible says, especially when we have already made up our minds when we come to the scripture. Ouch, I said in my little head. <laughs> you know, my conscience uh, grabbed me on that one. You know, something came to mind. There's a, there's a proverb, it comes out of Luke. It says, physician, heal thyself. And I thought it was very applicable. Now, the early church struggled to get free of some prevailing obstacles, both worldly and religious. Of those, the main two were, for the Gentile Christian coming in, paganism. And for the Jewish Christian, Judaism. Now, of those two, I think the greatest challenge, and the one that we're going to see uh, Paul address in this book, is Judaism. I mean, think about it. For a conscientious... Um, barely-rooted believer, uh, many of whom were Jews, breaking from their religious foundations was difficult. I can relate. You know, coming out of a background of Roman Catholicism, it's difficult when you have a foundation established and to, to, to take the time, be open-minded, look at it, and, and let, let the Holy Spirit speak to you. I mean, after all, God's the God of Israel, right? And He'd chosen Jewish authors to record his word. And the Jewish religion, it is the religion of the Old Testament, even with all of its ceremonial requirements. And then depending on how far you go into the first century after Christ, uh, it was the Old Testament itself. That was the only scripture around for the early believers until the New Testament was completed somewhere toward the end of the uh, first uh, century. And so it was then uh, that very few of the believers in those early days really understood the distinction between the law and grace. And we know this because Paul touches on this very topic multiple times in his different letters, almost all of his letters. And he's also going to come at it from multiple ways in this letter. Sometimes you're going to get tired of me saying the same thing over and over again, but Paul is saying it, okay? And there is a reason for that. I'm boring on my own, uh, I know, but we need, to, we need to go with what he tells us. Now, even today, many Christians are unclear on the relationship of the believer to the laws of the Old Testament. This is so. And it's understandable that in those days, the early days, believers could be deceived, uh, de deceived into thinking that keeping the law constituted righteousness. In our day, we have some misguided individuals and groups that teach on, uh, that believing on Jesus plus, you know, when you hear that, the Ten Commandments or eating kosher or celebrating Jewish feasts is the way to salvation or that it otherwise merits us some favor with the Lord or uh, pleases Him or adds to our holiness. But when you think about it, aren't these really just works that we're doing and instead of revealing, and instead that they are revealing some level of unbelief in the finished work of Christ? There's a common view, a widespread view of the law and grace. I've seen it. Uh, and it suggests that the law teaches, teaches us what to do. And that grace gives us the power to do it. In other words, the law is our teacher and grace is our enabler. Now on the surface, that sounds 
pretty good, right? You can believe that. You can almost believe that. But Paul did not believe that, not in the least. Uh, and Titus would have not gained that impression from what Paul taught him. And uh, so I'm going to, first scripture, and as I, as I go through the scriptures, and unless I state otherwise or you see otherwise on the slide, I'll be using the NASB 1995 version. That seems to be popular around here. So uh, Titus uh, 2, verses 11 and 12 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously and godly in the present age. So we see, according to these verses, uh, Titus would have understood that grace, not the law, teaches us to live righteous and godly lives. Likewise, Timothy, he would have come away with pretty much the same message when he received a letter from Paul. In 1 Timothy 1, verses 9 and 10, we read this, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. I mean, that passage pretty much removes any notion that the Old Testament law is somehow, somehow an instruction manual for believers, right? You know, believers who've already been made holy and righteous by the blood of the new covenant. Now, it's important that I just kind of step back for a minute right here, okay, because I start to get on dangerous ground regarding the law. This does not mean that Christians should discard or discount or otherwise disparage the Old Testament, because from Genesis to Malachi, it is the Word of God, and we need it. And all of God's Word is God-breathed and Holy Spirit-inspired. Without the Old Testament, we could not even understand the New Testament. It's been said, I'm sure you've heard this before, that the New Testament is concealed in the Old, and the Old Testament is revealed in the New. Also, in the Gospels, whenever Jesus refers to the Scriptures, He's speaking of the Old Testament. He's speaking of the Ten Commandments, the rituals, the ceremonies of Judaism, as well as Israel's civil laws. And he, Jesus, came to fulfill all of the law. But here's an important question. He fulfilled all the law. Think about this. Was the law the basis of Jesus' righteousness? Say that. He was righteous before. He was righteous before. Very good. Uh, he fulfilled the law. It did not make him righteous. Uh, you know, he was born a man under the law of Moses, and he came into this world, and he kept it, and he didn't violate it throughout his natural life. Yet it was not the keeping of the law that made him righteous. In other words, the law was not the basis of his righteousness. His righteousness, as you said, preceded and exceeded the law's requirements. Ironically, Though the law could contribute nothing to the righteousness of Jesus, it was the law that was used as the basis for his condemnation. That is, his execution and his death. From man's side, think of the, the Jewish rulers. They put him on that cross for blasphemy, the ultimate breaking of the law. And from a secular point, you know, Pontius 
had uh, him brought before him with the charges of sedition, also punishable by death, right? From man's aspect, from man's side. Now as we proceed in the study of Galatians, which is largely a discussion of law and grace, or law and faith, we're going to see that the law was never meant to produce righteousness. Rather, the law is meant to reveal two things, right? Guilt and our condemnation. Romans 3, 19 and 20 addresses this. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. And through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Right now, we should make a mental note. Righteousness does not come by the law. Judgment comes by the law. Effectively, the law takes our sin and binds it to us so that we are connected. But we need help. Next, it's also important to consider when in time... Sue. Porter. Right. And, 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 and for many years before the law even came on the scene, and yet we are judged of it. Um, when did it come in time? There was approximately 2,500 years of recorded history, which preceded uh, the law being given to Moses at Mount Sinai, and then he passed it on to the Jewish people. Let me ask this, could nobody then be found righteous in those 2,500 years? You're, you're, la you're smiling, Lugie. But it's, it, I think this is the, the whole point is that it, it goes back to talking about Abraham was justified by faith and that the whole point of the right. law was to expose our needs so that we'd be willing to receive from somewhere other than ourselves. Amen. And so it is, you know, uh, the, there were men, uh, there were some that were declared righteous, okay? And just as Luggy said, it's justifying faith by which God did that on credit, okay? You know, there's credit cards and there's cash. We live in the cash era. Those guys lived in the credit era. And uh, yet they believe, just like we do. Uh, men like Abel, right, and Enoch, Noah, and Abraham, just to name some. And guess what? None of those guys were Israelites, right? It wasn't until two generations after Abraham that Israel even began to exist. And then it took two more generations after Jacob's name was changed to Israel for the law to come through Moses to uh, Jacob's offspring, the Jews. And it did come to them. There must have been a reason because they were God's chosen people. They were given the law so that they would understand the distinct values, the distinct values that were to separate them from all the other nations of the world, all those godless nations that surrounded them. Listen carefully here. The law defined God's requirements for Israel, but it never made them righteous, nor was it intended to. Indeed, it so underscored their shortcomings and their inability to keep it that... Uh, it condemned them. In all of history, nobody has achieved righteousness by their efforts to keep the law. And that's because of this. Righteousness is a matter of the heart. It isn't some virtual external practice or some outward conformity to a set of unattainable rules. 
listen to, to God's uh, estimation of our condition, the humanity's condition, in Romans 3.10, and this is coming from other Psalms as well, as it's written, there is no one righteous, not even one. Everybody is condemned under the law. All right, so now is probably a good time then to talk about righteousness. Righteousness. What, what is righteousness? Any thoughts? Being consistent with the truth of God. I'm so glad you included God as part of the definition. You know, righteousness is characteristic of God himself. And we could say that he's absolutely righteous, but that's just redundant. Righteousness is only absolute, right? Anything less than absolutely righteous is unrighteous. God set the standard for righteousness, and he did it before he created anything before he created the heavens, the earth, or any living creatures, and that as such there's no law that can produce righteousness. <clears throat> the law was, a give, it was given to address the sh our shortcomings, and it exposes our inability to keep it perfectly. Further, the law explains condemnation that rests on the human race. Sometimes we see a fallen man referred to as the sons of Adam because that's where our identity begins. And as the law was given to Moses, it included pictures, <clears throat> shadows and types, right? These were prophetic. These types were pointing to God's ultimate solution for the very big problem, our problem, of unrighteousness. For example, in the, in the pictures provided by the law, there was substitutionary, substitutionary sacrifice, right? And there was the spilling of innocent blood informing the people that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. One place where we can see that affirmed is in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. It says, And according to the law, one may almost say, All things are cleansed with the blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. <clears throat> but the Jewish people, you know, with their religion that flowed from the law, they failed to realize two important things about the law. First, they did not realize that it was meant to be temporary, that it was not permanent, uh, not in nature. And uh, secondly, because of that, they did not connect it to the prophecies of the coming Messiah, not completely, and that is why they missed Jesus. Jesus, he would be the one who would fulfill all of the law's requirements, and later he will give the Jews, as he has us, a new heart and a new nature. Erroneously, the people defined righteousness as merely their efforts to keep the law, laws and ceremonies. And what resulted was a religious system, uh, religious legalism. You know, as if the law weren't hard enough, impossible enough, man added all his traditions on top of it. They added so much, they micromanaged so much, there was so much minutia. Nobody could keep anything. And uh, that led, uh, you know, to failure. And that led, listen, to hypocrisy. Religious hypocrisy, pious hypocrisy. That is so bad. Um, they were fooling th themselves into thinking that they were righteous by the time Jesus came on the scene. And rather than being an instrument of life then, the law became for them an instrument of death. 
Now let's take a minute to look at Paul. Any thoughts or comments to, to this point? Okay, let's look at Paul for a minute. Before his conversion, he'd been a conscientious, God-fearing Jewish rabbi. And he was not a hypocrite. Uh, he was a zealous keeper of the Mosaic Law and an evangelistic preacher of Judaism, maybe even, even a fanatic. From his youth, Paul had purposed to be a man with a good conscience toward God. But his problem was is that it was through the application of the law. And then Paul's misguided trajectory, his very mission that he was on, was halted on a Damascus road by a supernatural encounter with the risen Jesus Christ. And this is when Paul began to understand that Christ's death on the cross was a finished work, a finished work. And so he was transformed from a fanatical God-serving but Christ-hating Jew into an obedient and enduring disciple of the uh, promised Messiah. He was freed. Paul was now freed of the bondage of the law. And he went everywhere preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know what? The only Bible that he had, the only one existent at that time, was the compilation of the law and the prophets, the same one that Jesus called the scriptures and we know as the Old Testament. And yet, using those same Hebrew writings that had previously bound people to the Mosaic law, Paul was able to preach the liberating message, the liberating gospel of Jesus Christ, the one that sets people free using those same scriptures. So he was able to see when he was reborn the things in the Old Testament that we like to go and look at now. I would love to have heard him teach. Any comments to this point? You know, it's kind of like Jesus on the uh, road to Emmaus talking to the two disciples. Wouldn't you love to have heard what he was explaining from all the scriptures and the hymns? Uh, which are scriptures, but... Okay, so now then, early, early on, after Christ's resurrection, many Jews were convinced that he was the promised Messiah. But they did not at the first understand all that the gospel contained, meaning its deliverance from religious bondage and Old Testament legalism, which is what Christ's finished work provides for us. And as a consequence, a false message began to emerge from the Jewish community that was simply a revised Judaism, Judaism 2.0. Uh, this false message was coming from these ones called Judaizers. These Judaizers, you know, I, I was kind of mixed in my feeling. Were these guys even saved? You know, well, I mean, there's scripture that says, Acts 15 says they were of the Pharisee sect, sect the Pharisee sect, who had believed. I mean, I think they were just very hardline uh, Jewish believers. I'll give them the credit on that. Um, but, and so their message, though it included Jesus, it didn't communicate that he was the end of the law for righteousness, as Paul wrote uh, for us in Romans 10.4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And they, the Judaizers, they mistakenly viewed the law as, the, as a permanent arrangement rather than a temporary one, which was repealed. It was done away by Jesus' finished work. They basically believed that, you know, they looked at uh, the, the Gentiles around them. You know, Peter had to go to them 
in Acts 10, you know, he, he goes, he gets the vision and the, the a sheet comes down with all the different foods and it's telling him, don't call unclean what I have called clean, God says. And he ends up going to Cornelius. He sees the Holy Spirit come on them in the same way that it did to the Jewish uh, people at, uh, at Pentecost. And, uh, you know, it's just, uh, they're, they're, they weren't open to it. They were, they were thinking, the Jews, hardcore, that believed, were thinking that, well, yeah, I guess Gentiles can be uh, believers, but first they need to be Jews. And so they really stuck on the circumcision thing for an external marker. And then they said they need to follow the laws for an internal marker, just to be eligible to be a Christian. This is what they were discussing at the Jerusalem Council, these things. Anyway, so Paul, whose uh, staunch religious background made him uniquely qualified to address these things. He understood that a continued pursuit of the law was an indication not of righteousness, but of unbelief, that Jesus had in fact fulfilled the law. Therefore, what the Judaizing teachers required, uh, they were calling acts of faith, which is really just the keeping of the law, and by the way, I said it included circumcision. It was, in reality, as a demonstration of their unbelief. So, and, Jack, yes. Saved in that case, right? the I, I don't. No, I, I wouldn't say that. I believe uh, yes, they were, because there were people at the council who had strong opinions, who were there, and had been even at Pentecost. Who, you know, it's just it's letting go. I mean, this is that foundations I'm telling you about. It's hard to come out of Lugie. Yeah. Right. Right. Works. And not only that, I'm going to do it, but I want you to do it too, because I'll be affirmed when you do that. Mm-hmm. Kevin. Yes. So it was exactly the opposite of what God had intended. And fasting is so that we can remove ourselves, humble ourselves before God, so that we can be filled in the Sabbath with Him, right? right. So it's an emptying of ourselves. It's this picture of dying to self so that you can be filled with, with God through His righteousness and not your own, mm-hmm. right? And so you see the same thing in Genesis in the book and in, in the flood. The account of the flood. It's the exact same thing. Humanity had to be, and, and uh, Isaiah 54, I think, talks about, 54, 9, and 10, talks about the exact same thing. Talks about that Noah and saying that, that that's the covenant that God makes 
He cleanses his people so that he can put himself into them. That's right. You know? We're going to... Picture, uh, but, and, and I think to Jim's point about, you know, are they saved? I think the question, that question puts too much emphasis on intellect. Right. And too much emphasis on humanity. And spirituality, and living in the spirit right? versus living in the flesh. I think they were probably saved. I yeah. think it's not for us to know or not know. But I think the point is, it's God that saves, not your intellect. Right. And that's what this is going to point to. And, well, you know, the Galatian believers. The question, Jack, was, you know, later on in this first chapter, jumping ahead a little bit. Yeah, you are. Those that preach another gospel, they're accursed. There is no other gospel, as he'll say. But and that's why he calls it, all of this is a, pervor, it's a perversion of the gospel. That's right. That's not to say that you can't be saved and be mistaken about, about some things. And in a process of learning, Amy... Yeah. Oh, I've done that. It's almost like there's comfort in the doing. Right. Let me ask you. Because it can't be that easy. You know, because I've never done it more than once. Am I really saying it? It can't be that easy. It's hard to believe. Let me ask a question. Who in here was saved after the age, let's say, of 20? Who in the room? I mean, I think you probably got a real good handle on where these uh, the Jewish believers are coming from. I mean, I can see it. I told you this is a weak area for me. I'm not kidding. And so I'm letting the Word say what it says, you know? Yes. So it's not just a weak area for you. It was a weak area for Martin Luther. Yeah, he right. But he loved this letter. Commentary in the book of Galatians. Uh, and that is what started the Reformation. And he, he talked about it like... The concept of grace, not grace, but the concept of grace for the human mind is a very brittle concept. We get it for a second, and then we turn it into uh, licentiousness, or, or, and that's Romans 6, I think, you know, this thing about grace versus the law is something very difficult for humanity to understand. Yeah, we have to. this sin nature that expects that we get what we, what we earn, right. you know? We have to, there are so many things in here you're going to see. We've got to take it. We all believe it, but we believe it by faith. We, you know, crucify with Christ? I don't think so. Yeah. You know, and the deal is this. God, what we're taking by faith and believing, God believes it. He already believes it. He saw us on that cross. I mean, it's done. It's legal. You know, we, you know, we need to believe it, and it'll make for a lot better uh, peace with God. But we don't always, and we don't always, you know, continually believe it. And so there's a lot. This faith deal, you know, uh, in, our, in our flesh, we cannot do it. We can't do it. Where was I? Uh, anyway, so getting back to what you were saying, Jim, the, the Paul is so upset with him. We'll see in the first uh, couple of verses, that uh, the first chapter at least. He called, legalism is a perversion. In the, in the King James. In our, this uh, Bible, it'll say, it'll say a distortion. They distort it. It is a complete distortion. It is unrecognizable. It takes the gospel and makes it unrecognizable. There is no other gospel. Uh, and this is the reason, then, that he writes 
Galatians because those new believers, they'd been victims of false teaching, what we're talking about right now. Early on, I mean, you, they, they were manipulatable. Is that a word? And uh, anyway, bottom line is that uh, is this. The, keep, the addition of keeping of the law of Moses to the gospel is really just a denial of the finished work of Christ. And we hear that all the time here, the finished work of Christ. He is sufficient. You get it all. When you come to the Lord, you get it all. You don't wait around for this and that and those other things to happen to you and go, you know, jumping around and all that stuff. It's not about experience. It's about truth. And so, then to kind of wrap up this introduction, then, uh, I'd just like us to consider, as you've already talked about, covenants, two covenants, all right? Uh, and these are concerning God and his people. The first one is this it was God who delivered the law to Moses at Sinai, who then gave it to the people. And we can read about this event in uh, Exodus 24, verses 3 through 8. It says, Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the law of the Lord and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. Mm. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose in the mo- early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, and he read it in the hearing of the people. He's reading the covenant out loud right now. Everybody's been handed a a big pen because they're all going to sign it. And he said, all the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people. They signed it. Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. This is binding. Okay? Now, so the covenant of the Lord, this old covenant, first covenant we'll call it, uh, it was made with the Jews. It was two-sided It was a contract between God and the people of Israel. It was also conditional because both parties agreed to follow it. The Israelites, however, through their weakness of their flesh, uh, they soon defaulted and continued to do so throughout their history. Then it was about 850 years after the giving of the law and the signing of that first covenant that God spoke through the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 31, verses uh, 31 through 34, we can read this. Behold, this is God speaking. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. That's all of Israel. Not like the covenant, that old one, which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, although I was a husband, Uh, to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within within them and on their heart. I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. That's great. In this passage then from Jeremiah, we see some things. First, 
God did not make additions to the first covenant. He didn't just add another covenant to it, right? He made a new covenant to replace the old one, which is really what the terms old and new mean. The new covenant is a one-sided, unconditional contract. And so the Old Testament, then, in a sense, it is the law. Uh, the New Testament is God's one-sided covenant. You read all the I wills in that passage. It's not an add-on. It's a replacement. The Galatian believers, having come under the influence of the Judaizers, then they did not understand this fact. And that's the reason Paul is writing them this letter. And that's probably a good place for us to stop. So we'll actually get into it uh, next week. Uh, we'll start into chapter 1. Uh, Lugi, will you close us, please? Father, we thank you so. We thank you for how you made yourself and you gave to us. We have so many opportunities for us to prove our inability. But then you are so gentle in those opportunities and so kind to reveal yourself. So we thank you again. We thank you for this word. We thank you for your faithfulness to sustain it, to keep it for us so that you might prove yourself faithful to what you expect and to what you provide in our lives. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Thank you.